This week on Hacker in the Fed, we're going to do something a little different. We are interviewing a hacker. And lucky for us, we have a world-famous hacker as a co-host of the show. We have selected a number of questions submitted from our audience specifically directed towards Hector. And he will answer them from the perspective of his former self, Sabu. We cover questions like, what is a hack? What are the hardest security controls to beat? And what do hackers do with your stolen data? And finally, Sabu reveals his coolest hack. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Naxo. Joined, as always, by Hector Monsiger, friend and podcast co-host, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hey, heck, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. I can't complain. Yeah. Did you, uh, you have a good week? Yeah, it was a busy week. Q4 for any pen testing company at this point is, uh, is completely swamped. So it's been busy. How about yourself? Yeah, busy. Why is that? Are people just trying to spend the year in money before the, before the, it goes away? That's exactly right. Um, you know, they, they got to hit the, the, the check boxes. Um, uh, there's all sorts of different policies that require some sort of pen testing, and so because of that, you have a lot of last minute, oh, my God, we need a pen test by uh, Tuesday of next week. And there's, you know, 5,000 internal assets. Can you do it? It's, it's one of those situations. I certainly would recommend to future clients uh, to, yeah, to get ahead of that ahead of time. Uh, because, you know, a rush job is never a good job. Uh, you know, you don't want to just a checkbox for a red team assessment. So, Well, I mean, this is why continuous pen testing is going to be huge in 2023, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with calling me in to do a pen test like today. It, it works, right? I mean, I'll be able to identify a, a ton of issues for you and, and help you kind of remediate that and get you to a threshold. Um, or if you call any other pen testing company, they're going to help you get to that point. But it, it is point in time, right? Uh, with a continuous pen testing platform, if you go that route, you could, you know, literally engage in network throughout the year daily if you want. Uh, it's going to cause a lot of noise for sure. But uh, if you if you configure it the right way, you know, you, I think you, you get a lot out of it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I would recommend for folks to look at their options and try to avoid Q4 if possible. I mean, I understand, you know, budget restrictions, limits, constraints, time constraints, and so on. But last-minute pen tests are always going to be rushed. So, just heads up. Let me ask you a question about that. Like, so, continuous pen testing. You, let's stay agnostic to an appliance. You, you buy some sort of appliance and package and software. And going, do you believe it's better for a company to throw that appliance in and turn on all the controls and then ease them back or put the appliance in and slowly start implementing controls? Which route would you recommend? Generic company, generic appliance, um, just, you know, sorry, generic question, I guess, too. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, 
you know, just from your standpoint or your experience? Well, yeah, I mean, it all depends on the appliance and what it does, right? If, if we keep it to like, a, let's say continuous pen testing, right? If you deploy a continuous pen testing host or appliance on your network, you want to make sure that, you know, it aligns with your internal policies, right? You also want to make sure that it's going to produce what is expected to produce. So I'll give you an example, okay? If you have a pretty tight internal network, you have VLANs and segmentation, you have all these different controls in place, right? In a real-world scenario, and, and this is this is a good example from a recent client, where in order for anyone, including a rogue actor, a rogue employee, inside a threat, to plug in a device in the network, the MAC address needs to be whitelisted, um, the device needs to be whitelisted, the IP address that it gets is static, it's not DHCP. So there's a lot of steps that needs to be taken, taken rather, before that device is functional on any network within that customer's environment. So if you have that kind of setup in place, and then you put in a, an appliance that's fully whitelisted with full control and access to everything, um, it may not replicate your environment entirely. The results will be useful for sure, especially if the appliance or the the, the continuous testing platform identifies serious or critical issues. Yeah, that's legitimate. That's valid. But is it a real-world scenario? And now we start to talk about the differences between uh, the risk of compromise and the likelihood of compromise, okay? The risk of compromise is, well, we scan our internal network. There is three different attack paths in Active Directory, including Kerber Roasting with a ton of hashes. Um, and we have uh, uh, template issues with... Uh, uh, active Directory Certificate Services, okay? Okay, that's that's great to know, 100%. Um, and then we also have, you know, 19 criticals. We have an obsolete or unsupported Windows system, et cetera, et cetera. All useful. Um, that's, that's, that would fall within the risk of compromise, critical. Now, the likelihood of compromise is a bit different. If you have a fully segmented, fully whitelisted environment, how likely would a rogue insider or a bad actor remotely be able to access Active Directory? That's one. Two, how likely are they to get access to that, that one unsupported Windows system that's segmented by a VLAN that maybe three IPs on the network have access to, right? Those are, those are stark differences. Um, now, if you're talking about a regular appliance, let's say like a, a different kind of product. It doesn't have to be pen testing. Let's say something like, um, like an asset management tool, okay? Or even a backup solution, right? Two great, two different great products or sets of products. They come in appliance form. You plug those in. Now, going back to your question, do we just plug it in, you know, uh, with a blank check and then start to apply controls on it? I mean, that's not my recommendation. I would recommend that you apply the same controls to those devices as you would with any, any other environment or any other system. And then you start to add controls that it needs, and hopefully you reach a point where that host or that appliance has the least possible privileges it needs to function. And that's my take on it, at least. Yeah, I agree with you. There's no reason to turn on every uh, gadget on the appliance. Turn them on as you as you get to use the appliance and you get going a little further. It can really knock your whole system off. You turn on every buzz and whistle. Well, I mean, look, segmentation is important, right? I mean, for example, you guys in Naxo, you guys have your office, right? I know you guys have segmentation. That's fantastic. Now you have to add a smart device to your network. Let's say a smart fridge, right? Because you want to save energy and you want to make sure that folks are not abusing that fridge. Okay. 
So you put a smart fridge into your office, you connect it, you know, over the wire to the network, um, but it's not segmented, right? So now you're you're you've accidentally um, or maybe purposely expanded your attack surface by allowing this fridge to have access, you know, carte blanche. Um, there's a lot of ways to tackle those kind of situations. I again, you know, I would just create a segmentation for smart devices um, with maybe one entryway for admins like yourself to log in and check on the fridge through your app if possible. Um, but yeah, this. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat, and the, the reality is is that, you know, as much as folks love zero trust, um, you know, least trust is probably, you know, your, 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 best, uh, your best pass forward, I guess. All good advice. Well, we got an exciting episode of Hacker in the Fed this week, Hector. Ooh. I know you're looking forward to it. So the Hacker in the Fed listeners get to interview Sabu this week. So Sabu gets to answer the hard questions, all questions asked by our listeners. And I'll go through and moderate and kind of make the questions a little bit easier for you, maybe, some of them. Some of these listeners are pretty knowledgeable about hacking and really want to get into the details. But we'll make it a little easier on you, Hector. Let's start off with the first one. Kenny from Las Vegas asks, what exactly is a hack? That's a great question. A big shout out to Kenny for asking that. Um, A hack could be anything, right? I mean, hacking by nature is not really a bad thing. I mean, you could even argue that the first person on the planet that, that learned how to create fire, you know, was a hacker, right? Um, it, it's tinkering. It's learning. Um, if we're talking about an illegal hack where there's some sort of compromise in place, then yeah, it's it's an event, a scenario where uh, a bad actor with bad intentions uh, had compromised a host, a service, an environment uh, with the intent of, of, you know, obtaining access, Right. That's what a hack would be, and I'm sure you have uh, uh, you could provide some more uh, a better definition of that, Chris, from your perspective. Well, from my FBI days, a hack or a violation of 18 U.S.C. 1030 is exceeding unauthorized access into a computer system or device, and that's off the top of my head. I didn't even read that. <laughs> and so, in the United States uh, code, you know, it's a, it's a felony if it's over five thousand dollars in damage. Now, it can take. A lot more than $5,000 just to investigate it to figure out what happened. So it's it's pretty easy to get to that $5,000 threshold. But it's included in, you know, going into a computer system at work that you're not allowed normally to go into. That That's a hack. Uh, changing a website defacement. That's a hack. Um, you know, stealing 500 million records from a database uh, that you don't, you're not allowed to have access to. That's a hack. You know, getting into your friend's or ex-girlfriend's iPhone to look through stuff. These are all hacks. Um, So Kenny further asks his question, Hector. It is, you know, he's asked, when Hector sits down at his computer during the war he was in, how does it start? Does he simply use software or does he log into a command prompt and start coding? Well, Kenny, I'll tell you, uh, before Hector answers, I'll tell you for a fact that he probably doesn't use a PC to do his hacking. Am I wrong, Hector? Yeah, well, I, I, when, I was, when I was the bad guy, I was hacking from anything. Um, you know, it didn't matter the operating system, even though for, I would say, most of my life I've been using either Linux or um, any of the BSDs, right, uh, Unix. Uh, for a long time, I used NetBSD and then FreeBSD and, of course, OpenBSD later on. Um, but... You know, back when, when I was a bad guy, I would even use T-Mobile Sidekicks. The Sidekick was actually a Unix backend, and it was running Java on the front end. And um, it had a, a really good SSH client 
So I would actually just walk around with my sidekick. You know, I would go to work, go to a club, go party, and then uh, hop on my sidekick, open an SSH client, log into one of my machines remotely, and um, open up a screen. Right, a screen. The screen is a is a, is a really awesome tool that allows you to um, you know kind of save a terminal to the background. Right? I'm trying to make it as uh, trying to dumb it down as easy as possible. But basically, you could you could kind of suspend or or put a, a terminal into the background while you go do other things. And so I would, you know, do some hacking on my sidekick and then just turn it back off, close it, and go back to what I was doing. But how does it start? Like, you sit down and you say, today I'm going to hack the FBI. So where does it start? Do you, do you have to decide, like, what you want to do? Do you want to do a, a, a defacement on the FBI? Do you want to steal data from the FBI? Do you want to shut down their servers in some sort of way? You want to crash their servers? Like, do you have to decide that first before you start doing something? Or is there like a recon that, that you start doing? Well, it, it depends on the hacker and it depends on their goals. So I'll give you my goal when I was targeting uh, the FBI Academy, with no offense to you. Um, there was an interest in compromising the FBI Academy because there was a you know a interest in learning what the FBI agents were learning through the FBI Academy. I learned later on that the FBI Academy is like an educational portal. There probably wasn't nothing any, any there was probably nothing in there that was too exciting. Well, I I lived there for 21 weeks and I can tell you that everyone said that someone farted in there in 1972 and it was still in there. So, <laughs> you might not want to have uh, hacked into it. <laughs> so I'll give you the example of, of me targeting the FBI Academy. Did I get in, in into it? No, I don't think so. I think we ended up compromising a few accounts that had access to the FBI Academy, but that, that wasn't a hack, right? That was just a compromise of accounts. So the FBI Academy had a portal. They might still have one. And, um, and so the idea was, okay, so that's the target. We have to do reconnaissance on it. Um, we're looking at, okay, what the portal is written in, like what's the software behind it? Um, you know, is there MFA at that point? And, and remember, 2012, MFA was still very, very new. Um, at most, I would see cat cards, sites with cat cards, you know? Um, and I'm not sure I saw that with the FBI Academy website. And then, of course, you know, what kind of perimeters are in the application? Uh, can I do a SQL injection, for example? Or is there... You know, any other information I could glean from that web server. What's a SQL injection, though? Well, a SQL injection is is, is just a technique. Um, well, it's an attack vector that allows someone to inject arbitrary SQL queries into a parameter. Then if that parameter's value, you know, gets added to a, an actual query in the back end, then theoretically you should be able to execute arbitrary SQL queries um, from from your requests, right? So, like, SQL is like a database, and so you could put extra commands into like the the browser, and you could get the database to give you results that that you weren't supposed to see. Absolutely, that's exactly what it is, right? So, I mean, SQL is very broad. You have MySQL and PostgreSQL, and you have MS SQL, right? There's all these different products, and there's different ways and syntaxes. Um, you know, there's not just one SQL injection payload that you would send over, okay? Uh, the idea would be to, one, identify, is there SQL uh, queries happening or any sort of database? Two, can we interact with that database in any way? For example, when you sign up to a website and you've identified at this point that you know SQL is being used in the back end, uh, can you, instead of a username, can you inject a bunch of meta characters like a single quote and make the application crash? If the application crashes, 
does it give you sufficient information to identify whether or not that that single quote broke the backend's query, okay? If it does, then at that point, you have a pretty good chance at being able to do an injection. So you take that same username parameter, you inject the SQL injection query that works in your behalf and hope that you get some results. Now, there's one thing I will point out, Chris, is that not every SQL injection is the same. Some may also act blindly, meaning that you will not see any results. And you would have to rely on a tool like SQL Map to help you identify um, whether or not the queries worked using timing and other methodologies, right? So going back to the question from Kenny, in the case of, you know, me looking at like the FBI Academy when I did, I use a terminal to scan it, you know, using Nmap or whatever other tools I had. Um, you know, I would look at the, the the web application with my browser. I would look at, uh, damn, what was there was a tool back then? I think it was Fiddler Two. It was like a proxy interception tool, and I would use that. I'm just gonna say Fiddler Two for now, but it was probably something else. I used to use Fiddler or Fiddler Two to intercept the queries or requests back and forth between me and the FBI Academy, and I would try to input malicious data and see if the website would crash. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of the process for that example. So you were trying to make it crash, or you were trying to see how far you could push it before it crashed? Well, the goal wasn't to make the application crash, right? I, I wasn't trying to do a denial of service. Um, instead, I wanted the application to crash enough to give me an error message that would help me kind of figure out, one, what's the back end? Two, uh, uh, what kind of error message I get, re- get in return? Because based on the error message, you can identify whether it's a MySQL instance in the back end or MySQL, et cetera, et cetera. And then that helps you kind of build out a strategy. Mm. And is that noisy? Is someone seeing you doing all this? They, well, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's going to be in the logs for sure, mm. right? But now that's just that's just an attempt. Um, that's just you know attacking a web application. Now, if 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 we were to look at me hacking into the government of Tunisia during the uh, uprising in the Arab Spring, right? Now, that was a completely different scenario. That scenario was a full recon of Tunisian government infrastructure, looking at DNS and SMTP servers, looking at MX and DNS records, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that had to be done as part of that reconnaissance uh, phase. Um, and once I kind of had a picture as to what the infrastructure looked like looked like from the outside in, then I was able to kind of build a strategy to compromise them. And, uh, and yeah, so, you know, again, different scenarios require different uh, approaches. Uh, but again, it also depends on the end goal of the attacker. But so it sounds like the first step is to get in there and kind of learn the systems, learn what's going on. And then from, from that, it, it can tell you what you can do as a hacker. It's very similar to, to, in this case, being an FBI agent, right? You know, you're, when you get a case, you're doing reconnaissance, you're doing information gathering, you're knowing who the victim is. Uh, why they were attacked, who the attacker may be, even if you don't know who it is, right? Uh, and so now you're investigating, you know, not only uh, the, the the variables involved, but now you're looking at, well, are there other unknowns, right? Kind of going back to uh, uh, Rumsfeld, you know, his famous uh, introduction of knowns and unknowns. Remember that whole, that, that whole thing, Chris? Sure, sure. You know, I don't think a lot of people got it. You know, they thought that he was probably talking out of his ass. But the reality is that Donald Rumsfeld introduced something to, um, you know, the American conscious that a lot of people really did not know about, which is there's there's a there's a quadrant um, from knowns and unknowns, known knowns and unknown unknowns. Right. It sounds ridiculous, but it makes a lot of sense. And it applies to 
Chris as an FBI agent doing his research and me as a bad actor doing my reconnaissance. So, well, that brings up a good point. Philip wants to know, how does a hacker make themselves, quote unquote, invisible? How do you hide yourself when you're making so much noise doing this reconnaissance on, uh, on these systems? I mean, that's another great question. There is no way to make yourself invisible, okay? The best thing that you can do is mask your presence. Uh, depending on what you're doing, there's different ways for you to mask your presence. Um, for example, if you were someone that just wanted to visit a website, you would probably use Tor, maybe a VPN service, maybe a VPN service you put together yourself. When you go visit the target site, the target site's log files will show an IP from uh, the, the Tor service or the Tor exit node, sorry, the VPN service, et cetera. Once you start breaking into systems, um, you know, you're going to find that, you know, operational security is extremely important because you don't want to get caught. That's the idea, right? So you would have to use a service or a range of IPs uh, that would allow you to mask a presence or at least mask your original IP. In the worst case scenario, if, if a law enforcement tries to subpoena the records for that IP address, it shouldn't go to you. But there's one caveat to that. If you are attacking, uh, let's say, the FBI from within the United States using U.S. IP addresses, then at that point, the FBI would have, I think, much easier uh, opportunity, not only to you know, subpoena and talk to the, the owner of the IP address, maybe we even get access to the hosts that you proxy through. Now, remember, since you're pro proxying through that host, that host has logs of you connecting to it. So... If I were to apply, um, you know, my strategy when I was a bad guy to this conversation, I would actually break into servers um, out of states, out of the United States. Um, you know, a big apologies to my friends in Ukraine. I would hack into Ukrainian servers because the uh, connection was actually pretty fast in comparison. And then from there, I would hack into Russia. I would hack into other countries. The idea is that I would I would try to compromise assets that had um, no real extradition or, uh, you know, bilateral or, or bilateral, sorry, you know, uh, uh, I, I guess, you know, cooperation between the countries. So if I wanted to hack India, I would do it through Pakistan, right? If I, if I wanted to hack Japan, I would do it through China. And that's how I did it. You're not invisible. You just don't want it to be attributable to you. That's exactly right. There's no, there's no quote unquote visibility here, right? Even, even back in the 80s and early 90s when people were using spoofing, right? Um, when you could spoof, uh, it was a one-way spoof. You, you know, you're basically sending a command, rather you send a packet abroad with a source address that belongs to someone else. So the target server would see that source address and be like, oh, okay, so someone in Japan is trying to break into my system. And even if they don't, and even if the, if the packet leads to a successful compromise, you still won't see the results, right? It's a one-way um, attack. That's not efficient. And it's also not really a thing these days. Um, I think there might be some network segments in the world that allow, you know, sin spoofing. But as far as I know, that's it's pretty much dead. So yes, there's no visibility. It's all about attribution and avoiding it. What about once you're inside the system that you've compromised? Is there a way of going back and erasing your tracks? Well, that's another great question. There is a way to remove the logs in the host. That's assuming that the host is not centralizing logs somewhere else. With a reminder that we're not making a playbook for hackers here. We are. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> maybe um, maybe some of your answers get bleeped out on this one, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, so 
the idea for the attacker at that point is is to eliminate or modify any logs that would attribute or have attribution um, you know back to them, even if they're using a hacked IP address. Um, when I when I was a bad guy, I left zero logs as, as often as I could, and the only way that I, I ever did, uh, you know what, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> That's funny. So, kind of along the same lines, Jesse wants to know how difficult is it to spoof an IP address? It's a great question. I mean, we kind of touched on it a moment ago, right? But yeah, so one of the most popular hacks that that use spoofing, you know, you, you could definitely read about it. It happened in the early '90s. Um, you know, it, it involved someone using a tool um, that spoofed uh, essentially an R login session, and um, and they were able to kind of send commands over the wire. the 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 thing with that, though, right, is that when you're spoofing, uh, you know, uh, an outbound packet, you're not going to see the results of it. So, I mean, that's that's problematic for the attacker. Um, for the defender, they're just seeing a bunch of random IP addresses. They don't know what's legitimate or not, right? Um, now, is it possible to spoof in 2022, now 2023 coming up? Uh, I'm sure it is, but it, it's it's not as effective as people think. Yeah, I think it was a, back in the day, there weren't many so many checks and balances uh, with checking IPs, geolocating IPs, and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, that's an old, you know, hacker movie type uh, type thing. So, um, you know, I, you know, we brought it up, you know, there's not really a need to spoof now with the, you know, like we said, the networks and the VPNs and, you know, hacking into boxes and using those boxes as your hot point. Um, so, so maybe, maybe less spoofing by hackers these days, but Jesse also wants to know, you know, wearing both your black hat and your white hat, you know, maybe two different answers here. What security control or security process has been the hardest for you to bypass? Yeah, I mean, that, that is a great question. I think that it's not necessarily a control. It could be. It could be argued. But I think that any time that you have a, a pretty valid and strong centralized logging system, okay, that, I mean, that goes a long way. There's nothing I can do. Once I break into one host, and then I find that all everything that I'm doing is going to you know a central instance, whether it's Elastic or Splunk or maybe a sock or or not even a sock, a sim rather, um, that's out of my control. And the reason why that's problematic for me is because now I have to rush against time to compromise that environment, assuming I can. Now, if I can't, then that means that someone somewhere is going to be watching me. That's assuming that there's a sock in place. That's assuming that there's people with eyes looking at these logs. Unfortunately, and I give you, I'm going to give the audience a reality check. A lot of organi- a lot of organizations may have a sim. They may have you know a lot of great tools, uh, but they don't have people really looking at those logs 24 um, seven. And even if you do bring an outside company to do 24 seven sock response for you or instant response. Uh, there's you're still relying on a human resource, and unfortunately, humans make mistakes. So, can I tell a funny story? And then, uh, you know, maybe this doesn't stay in the podcast, but maybe it does. But so, it's about you. Um, one of the uh, one of the things when we first uh, um, you know started working with Hector is you know there was a lot of people in the FBI that didn't trust Hector, you know, and, and so he 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 agreed that we could put a camera in his house to keep an eye on him and what was going on. 
And um, so agents, you know, were assigned to, to keep an eye on Hector, make sure it was like, make sure he didn't, you know, leave the building and things like that. Um, and it was one agent on my squad's turn to, to watch the camera that night. And we all had iPads and you could log into the iPad and watch it and all that. And uh, I get a call from Hector that the next day and saying, dude, I had a huge fire at my house and uh, like smoke filled the entire house and the fire department came and all that. And uh, so I said, really, I didn't hear anything about this. So I called the agent that was supposed to be watching that night. And I said, Hey, any problems last night? Anything going on? Like, nope. Real quiet night. Nothing happened. Nothing at all. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> Hector's right. Even when people are supposed to be watching, sometimes they're not. So uh, it's, uh, it's one of those moments. It's a reality that we face with, right? I mean, I've seen some amazing SOC or security operation centers. Um, I've seen I've seen great responses, right? I, I've hacked into machines where it was taken down, you know, two minutes later, okay, without mentioning the company's names. But there's some great companies out there, and they do a great job. Um, but you just gave a great example that sometimes things happen. And sometimes people will miss a you know a quick line that passes by the screen. You know what I mean? Um, but going back to to the question regarding technical controls, um, I've seen organizations more recently starting to disable NTLM. And when you disable NTLM, it's hard for an adversary to kind of move laterally because they're used to using specific tool. Well, NTLM is is, is essentially a, a protocol that allows you to um, you know I mean well first of all let's define it right. So it's the Windows New Technology Land Manager, and it's, a, it's basically a suite of different protocols offered by Microsoft. Um, for example, you're able to use NTLM authentication to authenticate with a service on an internal network, let's say uh, file sharing, okay? But you could also use it to, um, you know, connect to a service over like uh, SMB, right, uh, which is uh, the server message block. Um, it is this, there's a lot of things you can do with it, but for the most part, NTLM is used heavily for um, authentication, okay? Now, if you disable authentication on an internal network, Chris, I'm sure you're going to wonder, like, well, how do you commun- How do you authenticate with a service then, right? Like, how does that work? Well, the thing is that there's alternate authentication mechanisms like Kerberos, all right? And Kerberos is one that goes back a long time. It uses strong cryptography. Um, it's 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 a it's, it's probably even a much better authentication mechanism than NTLM. But here's the thing: a lot of the security tools and exploits that have been written are mostly written for what protocol? NTLM. Okay. Now, what you will see is researchers starting to develop tools that uses Kerberos for authentication. Um, and so, I guess the if I had to deal with uh, an annoying pesky uh, technical control, it would probably be the disabling of certain authentication protocols because now I have to rewrite tools to, to kind of do what it is I need to do, to move laterally. In terms of technical controls, you know, uh, the use of MFA is always extremely important, right? That, that's a technical control that goes a long way. I understand that you, can't, you cannot use MFA, and this is for the audience here, right? Get, get some perspective. You could use MFA for RDP, remote, remote desktop protocol, 100%. But you cannot use MFA, at least for now, using uh, or for SMB or WMI and or any of these protocols that would allow an attacker to to kind of move laterally across your network. So um, if an attacker is is is, you know, 
GUI focus, meaning that they need a graphical user interface, they require remote desktop, then the MFA, you know, technical control would, would go a long way. So Jared wants to know, what do hackers do with stolen data? When you, when you finally break in and you get the data that you're looking for, what do hackers do with it? Well, it depends on, on the kind of hacker we're talking about. If we're talking about a, a money-focused group, they want to extract some sort of funding or generate some sort of funding through these operations. Um, so, so let's specify it as a maybe a ransomware group. If a ransomware actor gets into your internal network and they get access to your data, then the first thing they want to do is exfiltrate that data. They're essentially at this point kind of like, you know, gold miners, right? Breaking into a mine or breaking into the earth, sorry, and, you know, finding gold. And then now they have to create a mechanism to extract the gold from the mine. Uh, they used to use carts and all sorts of uh, levees and pulleys, right, to get the gold out. It's the same concept here. The attacker would need to find a way to exfiltrate the files so that they could try to monetize those files afterwards. This includes databases of usernames, passwords, credit cards, intellectual property, which is uh, something that the Chinese government, for example, as an actor, as a threat actor, um, puts a heavy emphasis on. Um, but if it's just a, a normal ransomware group from the middle of Ohio, more than likely they just want data that they could try to ransom you with. So, yeah, Jared goes on to ask, you know, if we could explain it in tiers, um, meaning the information, like if someone gets in and, and gets your email, your name, your address, your phone number, that's one. Then the next level is like account details. And the next level is identity documents. So I can kind of tell you this, Jared, all of this is valuable. So the more information someone has about you, the more they can sell, sell it for. There's a price on the black, on the dark web, um, the, on these black market websites, you know, a, a full name with a name and address and, and a credit card and a valid credit card number with a, a uh, CVV and with also with a uh, expiration date, that's worth something. Then if they can have documents that go along with it, like your passport or your picture of your driver's license, that's worth even more. And this is sold in bulk uh, when it goes up. Um, I worked a case called, uh, it was Rove Digital. It was, uh, it was a case out of Estonia where they were buying servers around the world, including in the U.S. infrastructure. They had a servers in New York and servers in Chicago. Um, and they had one passport that had rented all of these these uh, these servers. Um, this one guy, I won't mention, he had a U.S. passport. His his identity got stolen online. Um, he got he then he went around the world, quote unquote, buying servers in the real name. So every time I I found more infrastructure, I'd show up to the the data center and they'd show me this one photograph of a passport, uh, and it was the same guy every time. So. Uh, bad guys are, are building these things about you uh, and, and selling it. And it's really what it comes down to. Oh, yeah. I mean, any information can be useful, right? I mean, that's a great example that you gave, Chris. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the scene in Hackers. Remember that movie where the uh, the head FBI agent gets his uh, identity stolen and they start you know posting stuff under his name? And We're not giving ideas here. No one's stealing my name. <laughs> but, uh, but no, the, uh, you know, I agree with Chris 100% here. Any data is valuable to them. Um, it's hard to put it in tiers. I mean, we, I'm sure technically we can, but the reality is that any access, any information is valuable to somebody. Yeah, and, and the more you can add to it, the bigger you can build that picture, uh, the better. And if they know it's useful, 
Um, you know, a, a lot of these phone calls we get, that's just to make sure to see that phone number really is a person. Um, and, and they'll ask you your name. Maybe, maybe they're trying to build to some credibility behind that stolen data. So, Hector, listener Dakota wants to know how the Facebook Messenger hack works, there, where a message is sent with, like, clickbait to someone's Facebook account, uh, and then they click on that, and it sends to all their friends, and it sends to their, their friends and goes on and on and on. Why are hackers doing this? What sort of data are they looking for? Um, so, really, Dakota, I'll, I'll answer this one for Hector. They're looking to build that network. Who are you friends with? Let's like we answered uh, Jared's question above. It was, you know, who are you talking to? That's valuable information. It's uh, they're, they're really trying to, to take uh, your network and build it out. Some people leave that information for free. You can go log into their Facebook account. You don't have to be friends with them and you can see their network. But if they, this is sort of an automated process to steal all your friends and, and kind of go what's on. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, you know, back in uh, the 2000s, there was um, uh, a quote unquote hack of MySpace, but it really wasn't a hack. It was a it was more of a worm that that, you know, took advantage of JavaScript on the site. And so, you know, as soon as you would, you know, refresh MySpace, um, it would automatically kind of execute that that a payload, um, and then it would spread across your profile and add content to your profile with the payload, until uh, MySpace became completely overwhelmed by you know the uh, the addition of of content, but also the addition of friends all over the all over the the, the site. Um, there was actually a researcher, a pretty popular researcher, Sammy K, that actually did that a while back. Now, you know, that was that was an interesting proof of concept to see how worms developed um, in those days. Now, it was all accidental on his part, right? He didn't, he had no intention of spreading a worm on the website. He was actually trying out, um, you know, a theoretical concept. But yeah, I mean, if if you were to apply what you just said to that scenario, if he wanted to do reconnaissance. Um, on the platform ent- on its on its own uh, entirely, then he could have used that payload to, um, you know, have a mass of people at him, and then he could start to identify patterns and relationships between different profiles. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's cool stuff. I mean, social media is is a is a completely you know massive addition to your attack surface that you want to be careful with. Yeah, you got to be careful what information you share out there, what you make public, because again, these. Uh, cyber criminals are, are are opportunistic to to take that information and possibly use it against you, uh, mixing it with uh, other data stolen from from your hack websites and that sort of thing. So, it's interesting. You you said something a few seconds ago about a, a fake hack, and it reminded me of a supervisor I once had in the FBI. Um, so we used to just you could rile them up really easy. You didn't really know hacking them well. So you could just we would make up like a fake HTML page, like this this site's been taken over by hacker in the Fed. Um, and, and plast it up there, like, you know, a local uh, web HTML page and just open it in our browser and then just go to the top of the, the browser bar and type in like FBI.gov and then take a screenshot and print it. And we could hand it to him and be like, FBI.gov just got hacked by hacker in the Fed. Can you imagine this? And he would get all fiery and take it up to his boss, who then would call him an asshole and send him back downstairs. Which I was <laughs> <so funny. laughs> oh, man. So you guys were pranking each other. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of pranks in the FBI. One of the best pranks I ever saw. So we've had these. Uh, um, it was like an internal communication where it was like video chat with each other. Um, my friend, uh, my friend Ilwan, he, uh, he made a, uh, mask of the director, uh, and he put it like on a popsicle stick and like cut the ma- mouth out and he would hold it up over his 
face and call people on this on internet. And it re- really, really good. He was so he was good at it. <laughs> one time. So we in New York, we had an uh, all purpose meeting uh, where everyone in the New York office comes together, and it was at Yankee Stadium. Uh, and they sent out an email about um, if you want to volunteer to sing the national anthem at that. So as soon as someone would leave their computer open, we'd race over and uh, reply back that they were interested in singing the national anthem at the uh, all FBI New York uh, office no. in the Middle League Stadium. Yeah, that was we loved that stuff. No way. Did it yeah. actually work? Was no, like, no. Because oh. they get email back and all that. But, but you know, it was, it was fun for us. So. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, look, that's 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 fascinating. You know, it, it's good to hear that you guys had a sense of humor in the background. I mean, you know, I, I guess for the hacker community or the scene, at least on IRC, it was similar, but not really. I mean, it was more uh, it was more toxic than that. I mean, we just break into each other's shells, shell servers, and and like post, you know, funny messages, you know, from the person or, or kind of leak their logs or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's cool stuff. We never did anything that bad. With it. We were breaking into other people's stuff. And the worst we would do is dump a few bullets in someone's backpack if they were going to the airport. No, that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it was just funny. <laughs> so, oh, man. Good right. times. Well, on with our, our interview of Sabu. Craig wants to know, what's the coolest hack you've ever done? So we're not glorifying the hacks that Hector did. Um, we've, we've talked about that many times. So, so maybe from a technical perspective, you know, something that required multiple levels for you to break into, or, you know, uh, maybe a bit of luck. Uh, Craig wants to know, uh, the coolest hack that you've ever done. That is such an awesome question because, you know, it, it kind of gives me nostalgia thinking about some of the stuff, right? Again, I'm not glorifying any of this guys. So please just bear with me. So to give you guys some context, here's a very interesting story, and it was a big deal, at least for a specific region, okay? There was a massive fire in Malaysia. It was probably, I'm I'm going to say 2002, 2003, maybe around there. And it was such a large fire that the smoke was going into Indonesia and causing a ton of problems. Um, It was affecting air quality. It was affecting farming communities. Um, It was a major deal. And I'm not sure you guys know this, but Indonesia to this day has one of the largest underground hacking communities on this planet. And they're very talented. They're very smart hackers. Um, You know, you probably do not really see them, you know, hacking your favorite websites. I would say they're isolated to their region. So if you were in Malaysia and if you're a Malaysian listener, you probably know of Indonesian hackers, for example. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Back when I was in Pure Elite, um, which was a group that I started back way back in the days, 2000 or so. I had recruited two guys. Uh, one was from Kuala Lumpur, and the other one was from another region of, of Malaysia. Very cool guys, the most awesome people, most awesome people I ever met in my life. Uh, and one was like a legit hacker. Okay, he was like a legit super hacker, very smart guy. Um, and I'm very proud of him to where he's at today. He's, he's in a very good position in his government today. But anyways. That's besides the point. He had messaged me and said, look, there's a big problem. Because of the fire, because of the smoke, Indonesian hackers now are, are attacking Malaysian infrastructure. And uh, he's like, you know, what, what do you think we should do? I said, well, guess what? I'm going to help you. I don't like bullies. You know what I mean? And even though Malaysia had a big hacking community at the time, 
um, they weren't uh, in, to- in terms of numbers. They weren't attacking Indonesia the way the Indonesians were attacking Malaysia. So I had interjected, and I decided that I am going to take over the um, the the Indonesian TLD, the top level domain, and I was going to give full control of all Indonesian websites over to the Malaysian side. And so I began doing research and reconnaissance. I had identified that NS1 and NS2.id, which is the Indonesian uh, TLD, uh, was run by a specific agency. That agency was made up of a bunch of students from a specific college or university. Okay. So in terms of of strategy, my idea was I need to compromise that university. Uh, Obviously, since then, the infrastructure has changed. So don't, don't, don't try what I did. So I spent about two weeks compromising the, uh, that Indonesian university. And once I was in, I started reading through the emails of their administrating staff or their administrative staff. While I was there, I was collecting passwords. I set up SSH binary backdoors. Um, I started capturing, you know, the administrator credentials. And then I started compromising all of the hosts that they logged into um, or logged in from into the servers that I compromised. I started moving laterally you know, kind of upstream until I found a host that was kind of like the, ne- the network operations, uh, operations center host. It was kind of like a jump server for you guys uh, that are developers now, right? Um, from that jump server, again, I backdoored SSH, I backdoored PAM, and I was, I was able to capture the SSH credentials to their NS1 host, okay? But here's the thing. The uh, credentials allowed me to get into the server, but it was a low-privileged, you know, account. I read through the bash history files or a file, and I found the root password. Because sometimes, Chris, people, uh, they kind of rush when they're switching from a local privileged user to super root or super user, right? Um, Or the root user. And they may type in the password twice. So, ladies and gents, if you have history files monitoring your your commands um, or your terminals, Make sure that you don't have your passwords in there. Story for another podcast sector. That's where Ross Ulbricht's password was found in his computer. There you go. There you go. Um, so I found the root password in that history files. I log in as root. And now at this point, I have full control of ns1.id. At this point, I had control of every single Indonesian website up to that point. Now, did I stop there? No. I found out that a couple of the hackers that were part of these Indonesian groups were also part of the computer emergency response team, Chris. So what did I do? I went on a spree hacking into the cert.id infrastructure, and I compromised every security professional in Indonesia that worked on cert because of the attribution to the hacker community. And then I created a dossier. I provided that to my Malaysian friends, and I said, do what you got to do. Now, ironically, uh, (laughs) peace, right? This is the funny part. Uh, That one friend contacted his contacts in China. uh, And by the way, to give you a little bit further context, the way Malaysia split, it split to three main groups. You have Chinese, you have the Muslims, and then you have Tamil, okay? Um, So my friend who's Muslim contacted his friends in China who had direct communication with the Indonesian hackers and they basically had like a, tr- a peace IRC session. Uh, the Malaysian friends transferred all the credentials and all access to the Indonesian guys. And everybody was happy after that. So because of, you know, the, the, the persistence, 
the determination on my behalf, breaking into different systems, using different exploits, um, looking at history files. That led to one of my favorite hacks of all time, the hacking of to Indonesia. Interesting. That's a fantastic story. Oh, yeah. But it was, we're not glorifying it. No, no, no. There's no glorification whatsoever here. All right. Perfect. So, hey, Evan writes, smart devices. What are your thoughts on smart devices connected to your home network? Are they just a target for hackers? We're talking about smart light bulbs, smart toasters, smart coffee makers, you know, anything like you'd mentioned, Naxo having a smart refrigerator. Yeah. I mean, any device that you add to your network with quote unquote smart capabilities, uh, which really means the use of different protocols to communicate back and forth between, you know, uh, the, the device itself and, uh, a, you know, a, a web application or a mobile application or anything. Uh, whenever you add a smart device to your network, you're expanding the surface, your attack surface. It's definitely not a good thing, but there are ways to deal with it. I personally have mitigated the, the risk, not completely, but I've mitigated as much as possible by making sure that the firmware of my devices are updated, but also I have a VLAN and those devices sit on the VLAN. In a worst case scenario, if I need to access, you know, the, the settings for a light bulb, I would have to switch my, you know, my network settings, uh, change the light bulb settings and then come back to my normal network. The point is the segmentation goes a long way. And yes, if you add smart devices to any network environment, you are expanding your attack service. Now, does it mean that an adversary could remotely log in, completely circumventing your firewalls and, and routers and, and switches and all that? Uh, no, there's no magic packet that's going to get you across all of those different controls so that they can access your smart device. But there may be ways for your smart device to connect outward and get compromised along the way. Okay, um, A popular technique for that is if a smart device is configured in a, in a very bad way, where it downloads updates through HTTP, if an adversary is somewhere along the line between that update server and your device, then they may be able to technically intercept that request and send you back uh, a malicious firmware for the device, thus creating you know an entryway. So, yes, it can be bad and it can expand your attack surface, but if you're aware of the risks, you, you should be able to mitigate those. That's excellent advice. John wants to know your relationship with the jester. Can you explain who the jester was in your life? Yeah, yeah. Well, the jester was someone that, uh, you know, he was considered like a uh, patriotic hacker, right? He was pro-United States or pro... I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, he's patriotic to, the, I guess, the, the, the country. You know, I, I, I've learned over the years that he's not like a, like a, like a psychophant, you know, like he's not, he's not obsessed with a one president or the other. So that's a good thing. But at the moment he, he considered, as, as far as I could tell, he considered uh, myself and Lulsec as bad people. Right. Um, and so he would spend time uh, trying to identify us or he would, you know, uh, mock us or um, try to uh, identify us through some of the hacks or, operational security failures or personal security failures. Uh, I didn't know him personally at the time. We, we talked a lot of crap towards each other. I tell you, I'll be honest with you. We talked a lot of shit. Um, I saw a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, it turns out he was, he's actually a, you know, okay guy. We spoke personally after my arrest, after I came out of prison, after I came back. 
Um, you know, nothing personal. He seemed okay. You know, do we talk every day? No. Um, are we like on? Are we like friends? I mean, no. But we're not enemies either. Do you know if he's still active in the hacking community or no? Well, I mean, he he uh, he created a really cool federated um, social media platform, right? Um, Counter Social, which I think is pretty badass. Now that people are moving away from Twitter, um, they're they're moving to Mastodon and, and other services. But he, he's created you know Counter Social a long long time ago. Like he kind of called it, right? He called that social media was gonna was gonna be terrible. It was probably going to take a really bad left turn at some point, um, but aside from that, I, I don't think he's he's you know attacking websites or anything anymore like he used to. John also wanted to know from my perspective how the FBI treats hackers uh, that align with the USG. Um, yes, so the jester, you know, he was you know I, I was dealing with Hector, and at the same time, the jester was kind of dealt with with a different office. Um, you know, at the time he was seen as, you know, it was still a violation of 18 USC 1030. He was still hacking into things. One of the problems that, that the gesture did, and you know, he would go after sites and maybe not just that site. Um, he would knock over the whole server and there would be hundreds of other, you know, websites aligned with that server. So to knock over one bad guy site, you know, would take out hundreds of other, you know, perfectly legal entities, um, you know, so he had to be, you know, it was treated the exact same way. You know, it was a hacker and a violation of the code. So someone in a different field office, you know, was trying to find him. I don't know what the results were. I don't know if uh, the jester was ever even arrested, uh, but not part of my investigation. So um, I, I didn't really put much too much effort into it. So Hector, the, the last question I have for you is probably the most common question. Um, something that we get all the time. Um, we get questions like this at Hacker and the Fed. We get questions like this almost every day at Naxo. And I know you're somewhat passionate about it. It's about cybersecurity careers. I'm passionate about it too. You know, I, I went on the Lex Friedman podcast and mentioned that there's over a million openings available in cybersecurity. Um, so we let me just shout out to the listeners. You know, Peter in British Columbia, Artem, Philip. Jim, who's down in Georgia. G was a, she's a mother asking about uh, careers for her son. Um, John, Eric from Minnesota, just to name a few. You know, some of them are working on certif certifications. Some of them are former military. Some just want to start, start a new career. Uh, and again, like G was asking about her 13 year old son. Where do people start? Where do, how do they get into cybersecurity careers? I mean, that, that's a fantastic question because yes, I, like you said, I am passionate about that. And before I leave this earth, I want to be able to at least inspire uh, some people to get into the industry. And, and and I just want to say something. You know, you don't have to be 13 and you don't have to be 50, right? I mean, it's anybody can get into the industry like today. It is booming. Business is a booming. Um, if you like money, then it's the perfect opportunity for you. Now, if you want a career change, um, you know, again, it's, it's, an, it's an opportunity. Now, how do you start? Well, that's a that's a that's a great question. It's also very hard, right? Because it all depends on what it is that you want to do. All right. If you want to be a pen tester like myself, meaning someone that will break into a system, um, identify vulnerabilities, put together a report, communicate the, those reports back to the clients. If that's what what you want to do, then you have to understand at the very least basic concepts, basic security concepts. Um, you have to understand what different vectors are. You could start by going to like OWASP.org and looking at like their OWASP top 10. They also have a large library of content there. 
Additionally, you could also go to YouTube. There's countless, I would say endless, YouTube videos on cybersecurity, how to get in, what is hacking. Then you also have platforms like tryhackme.com. You go there, it's free. Uh, you could upgrade if you want to, to a, you know, a premium service. But the reality is that now there's enough platforms and content available to you that you know at this point now it's just a matter of sitting there and absorbing the content and understanding what these things are. Hector, let, let me just add to, to people going to like your suggestion of YouTube. So sometimes people putting out YouTube content doesn't don't quite understand where that line is between you know illegal and legal and education and that sort of thing. So be very mindful that if you are following instructions on YouTube or some other thing like this, and you are going into a computer system that you do not have permission to go into, that's illegal. Do not cross those lines. I'll tell you from the first step, you do not, you, it's much, much, much more difficult to get into cybersecurity and a cybersecurity career with a felony on your record. Um, Hector can speak to that. Um, and how you have to get past that hurdle. So just be mindful that to not to, to know what you're you're getting into and not going past where you're comfortable. A hundred percent. I agree with Chris on that. With great power comes great responsibility. And just because now you've learned how to compromise a system, or now you learned what is a what is a SQL injection, doesn't mean that you can go to your local bank website and start executing or try to engage. Uh, you know, those websites or that website for vulnerabilities. Uh, there are platforms that allow you to do that. For example, you go to HackerOne.com. You can sign up, follow the instructions, and they will give you targets that have authorized you to actually test your skills. And if you do find a vulnerability, you may even get paid for it. There are people on HackerOne that have made millions of dollars. And so, you know, that is another part of, of, of the industry that you could definitely partake in. It's called bug bounty hunting. Okay. Um, but kind of going back to the introduction to, to this industry, uh, once you've identified exactly what it is you could do, and I'm going to give you some, some, some example career paths, right? So you could be a penetration tester. You could be a SOC analyst. You could be a security engineer. You could be a CISO. That's in management. Um, you could be part of the the, the, pro, the you know, development team with DevOps security. What, what does that mean? Uh, well, it's development, operations, and security. And at that point, you would make sure that every time your developers deploy um, any sort of production code, even before deployment, you would do a security audit of the code that they created. Um, you would add that to the overall security posture or the uh, uh, security, uh, uh, rather understanding of the overall security of the program. And then, you know, you would find vulnerabilities and fix them prior to deployment, right? So there's a lot of different angles. There's a lot of different career paths when it comes to cybersecurity. It's not a one-trick pony. Now, once you've identified your path, okay, now it's a matter of going, going back to, like, YouTube and, you know, kind of just putting questions out there. Like, hey, what is a SOC analyst? What is incident response, right? Um, if you're not into watching videos of random people talking about these topics, you go to Google, right? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to get these answers. And the good thing is, um, and it's, by the way, Chris is a stark contrast to when I was on the internet, because when I was on the internet, the only hacking content or security content I could find were basically how to instructions on how to break into systems. Because back in those days, learning to hack required hacking to learn. So you had to hack into a system in order to learn what it is that you were doing, um, you know, and by breaking into the system. It's kind of like 
If you want to learn about car security, you will break it to cars <laughs> and, and learn what works and what didn't. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, the difference back, there were a lot less people watching, too. There was a lot less automated systems. There were a lot, you know, there weren't, you know, cyber FBI agents. There were, you know, FBI agents that knew computers, but there weren't whole squads and divisions you know, assigned to just hacking. Uh, that, that, was, that was a big difference. And this is why many people like myself who were hacking in those days really didn't get caught. Right. I, I only got caught because I got back into it. And I, I, obviously I was ta- attacking U.S. interests, which was a very bad move on my behalf. Um, and, it, you know, it was a blunder and a mistake that I learned from. But when I was hacking as a kid, as a teenager, it was very innocent. It was out of curiosity. Yes, I still broke the law, but there was no malicious intent. I wasn't trying to destroy anybody, destroy any businesses or expose anyone. Um, it was a different kind of mindset back in the days. Now you don't even have to do that anymore. Now you go to try hack me, and and you could you could use your newfound skills to compromise a, a virtual host. Um, you go to you know hacker one to, to earn some money and, and put your skills to the test against other hackers um, or other researchers rather. Um, and then now once you feel like you have a pretty good grasp of the basic security concepts, at this point you should have six months to a year of experience using Linux. Um, you should also at that point have uh, chosen your primary programming language because you do need a language to write your own custom tools. Uh, I would I would recommend Python, by the way. It's, it's human readable. and syntax is powerful, right? Now, once you have your programming language, once you have Linux skills, once you have an understanding of security concepts, uh, and you've already, you've already practiced on Try Hack Me, you've already practiced on Capture the Flag events, you've, 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 you've taken it as far as you can. Now it's time and it's not a requirement, but now will probably be a time to get your certification. Um, offensive security offers probably some of the best, most known certificates, specifically the OSCP. It's costly. So before you make that decision, make sure you study very hard before you take that test. Um, once you fail the test, you have to pay and start all over again. Okay. Um, but yes, it sounds like a lot of work, but trust me, if you really want to do it, you'll make it happen within the first two years. Um I've 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 mentored people that started last year and now they're already in their entry level positions. Okay. And networking. That's the last one I'm gonna leave you with. Networking, networking, networking. The security industry in general, um, there's a lot of great people, a lot of awesome people to network with. They will more than likely help you get a job. Um, right now, if you go to LinkedIn and you type in InfoSec job, okay, you may see a million, you know, job offers, like like Chris said, but a lot of those companies have requirements that are sometimes unrealistic. And because they're unrealistic, even though you feel like you might be the perfect fit, you may not get hired. So networking, unfortunately for now, is going to help you get to the position that you want to be in. No, I completely agree with you. There's a lot of uh, security jobs out there that have, you know, entry level that requires nine to 10 years experience doing all this. It's, it's crazy. Some of the, 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 the hurdles they put on some of these job offers. So uh, yeah, hands-on, get as much hands-on experience as you can. And, you know, just like any career fields, you know, sometimes you have to start at the bottom, but there are some really good jobs at the bottom where you're going to get those skill sets to, to learn your, your language and learn your, your hands-on skills. So a lot of great advice, Hector. I, I appreciate that. And, and I hope, you know, if anyone has any specific questions, you know, again, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, you can reach Hector and I at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Really great interview today, Hector. And I'm, I'm glad these are all our listeners. This, this is them interviewing you. Um, and, and they were able to interview you by using that email address, questions at hackerinthefed.com. 
Also, if you're interested in sponsoring the the hackerinthefed.com, feel free to reach out to us at sponsor at hackerinthefed.com. Another great episode, Hector. I, I appreciate you spending your evening with me and recording this. Um, and just remind our listeners uh, that there's new episodes every Thursday and download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, I thank you for your time, Hector. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. All Cheers. Right, friend. Cheers. Cheers.